You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I know you're waiting for our tagline, 40 years thereof. It's coming. But first, you've heard me on this platform touting NRS, a great company whose many dedicated employees I get to see in action. NRS Pay has recently launched its new cost-cutting program called Cash Discount. The way it works is any vendor using NRS Pay Cash Discount has their sale register tabulating automatically a dual pricing, which offers customers a choice of a cash payment, which could result in an up to 4% discount over swiping their card. If your business meets the $18,000 a month threshold, there's absolutely no monthly fee to incur. NRS Pay Cash Discount makes it less expensive to accept credit cards, so you'll save money while helping your customers save at the same time. NRS is offering a time-limited deal right now on this state-of-the-art system. You'll get a free card reader with zero hidden fees, no long-term contract, and no early termination fee, which means you can switch your processing plan without penalty. NRS Pay is a proud part of the IDT Corporation that I've been associated with for over 10 years and has integrity built into its corporate DNA. I know its founder, its officers, and salespeople, and they truly stand by their product and will help you with live stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Check nrspay.com for more information or call 833-289-2767. And now, Emeritus Rex. 75 years into Medina Sisol, over 40 years ago, this is Emeritus Rex. With Rabbi Reuben Yeshua Pupko. We are uh, recording here, Rabbi Pupko, on the sixth night of Hanukkah. And it's interesting that on the fifth day of Hanukkah, he had a the White House uh, Hanukkah party. Uh, it was reported in the Jewish Telegraph Agency, a very nice reportage about who lit. I think Doug Emhoff was given the COVID of lighting. And other uh, White House staffers that were descendants of Holocaust survivors, I heard. One of the things I think I just want our listeners to know, which I, I thought quite moving, was that even though there was the permanent White House menorah that was dedicated last year, there was also a menorah that was brought from the rubble of Kvaraza. And it was uh, specifically salvaged, brought to the United States, and um, emblazoned with the with, with the seal of approval of the U.S., about what this menorah stands for, how it survived, and how everybody was quite moved uh, by the sight of that menorah and, and what it meant. And then Biden was extremely supportive of, uh, again, just as he has been. And then there was a line that he said there, which I want to discuss with you, and it was probably written for him by his staffers. And that is, folks, without an Israel, no Jew safe anywhere in the world. That's true, yeah. What a unique statement. Zionists have been saying this for 75 years. Uh, Biden is an interesting character. He's, you know, his whole entire adult life, he's been a politician. There's no question that he has tight relations with a lot of Jews. There are a lot of Jews in this administration. Everybody from the Department of Homeland Security, uh, National Security, uh, the Secretary of State. There are Jews all over the place. But more importantly, He's from a generation very different than, for instance, Obama, that really does, you know, still have a romantic view of the state of Israel and its creation and its uh, 
and his security. He really does have a romantic view of it. However, you know, he did balance his uh, intervention at the Hanukkah party by the next day, you know, talking about how Israel is losing support because of the what was seen as the indiscriminate bombing in Gaza. But he is a, uh, he, he certainly thinks of himself as somebody who loves Israel. He called, proudly called himself a Zionist. Listen, Rabbi Yankov Kimonetsky and Amos Liadgov on Parsha's Boy talks about how the creation of the state of Israel basically saved us. You know, and after the, after the Holocaust, we were a beaten people. And the only thing that revived Jewish pride and dignity was the creation of the state of Israel. The Balchuva movement, right? Of after, you know, that only existed, not because of some guy in Crown Heights or Asia Torah. No, it happened because of the Six Day War. Chabad houses, they only exist today because of the state of Israel. Only. What he was saying is, had there not been the creation of the state of Israel, then Jewish diaspora would not have thrived. It would have acted like the opposite of Philip Roth's Operation Shylock or, um, right, right. or, or Michael Shabon's uh, book. It would be the exact opposite. We would have been persecuted. Not persecuted, we would have given up. Right. But again, even in our physical safety, there would have, which is, which is really like right. so counter. Listen, physical safety, we can debate, but there's no question as proven by French jury, Soviet jury, that the safe, the idea of a safe haven certainly secures all of us. Yes. So it is, it really is somewhat a quasi mystical statement. And I, I, I thought it was unique. So on some levels, mystical on other levels, it's pretty practical. We were a broken people after the Holocaust. And three years later, we had Tchias Mason. Tevi Troy, who I'm sure you know, uh, wrote yeah. very glowingly about Bush's Hanukkah parties. And Bush's Hanukkah parties were very right-wing. It was Orthodox rabbis were, were all there. I'm not sure. When I look at this picture, which I'm showing you from the JTA, I see not only Doug Emhoff, the second gentleman, I see Rabbi Angela Buchtal of the Central Synagogue in New York City. Uh, one of the things that I, I, I once is that Bush's Hanukkah party was very different than Obama. Of course it was. Every president picks the, the rabbis that support them. Angela is a Democrat. Who were the Republican Jews? <laughs> Republican Jews aren't that many. Of course they're going to get the Orthodox. I mean, presidents pick like-minded clergy people. I, I, I put it this way. It is the most Jewish event that has paid for by our taxes. So therefore, that event, which is, again, which was during the Bush White House, you could get, it was catered by the by glot kosher uh, people. This one, again, it still bespeaks the liberalistic viewpoint of the Obama administration. But yet, with Biden's unflinching support for Eretz Yisrael. So I think that's an interesting mix. Oh, I, I was invited to meet the Prime Minister of Canada on Monday, and I declined. What, what did you say to the Prime Minister? You had a, a, pre, a previous engagement? I understood that he was inviting me to use me, because the next day he was going to vote against Israel at the, at the, as a, at oh, the general Oh, in other words, Canada, Canada joined uh, everyone else in the UN to call for an immediate ceasefire? Yes. Wow. I mean, I didn't know that was going to happen, but I knew that he was getting battered and he wanted me as a, as a, as a hashtag. Obviously, we know what the UN is, and this is not surprising. The UN, UN has a long history of, 
of, of attacking Israel on every single front. And of course, we shouldn't be surprised, but it is strange that Canada decides to join in with the rest of the, uh, the rest listen, of the Canada. Game. Listen, Canada, Trudeau's mostly said the right things, mostly. I mean, there were certainly some glaring and very painful exceptions to that. But the day before he, they voted again at the General Assembly, he issued a statement with Australia and New Zealand calling for a ceasefire, but including in that call disarmament of, 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 of Hamas, release of all the hostages. You know, it was a normal call. You know, it was, uh, you know, it, you know, it's in, in surrender, you know. So it was a different call. The General Assembly vote was ridiculous. But again, it's meaningless. It doesn't matter. What got you Penn in, 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 in trouble was firstly, there was a, there was already trouble before October 7th. They had that Palestine literary festival where they had a, a couple of very notorious anti-Semites being allowed to speak and have a platform there. And so she was already in trouble over that. The next thing was, yes, none of them could answer a simple question like, yeah. Calling for genocide is harassment. I mean, it's ridiculous. They couldn't answer that simply. And again, I think by now many have read the, uh, you know, the explanations of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times about how they lawyered up and lawyers get into room and prep witnesses. And the only thing lawyers worry about is future legal exposure. And they were told if they commit themselves unequivocally to anything, they could be, they, they, they could have legal exposure later if they didn't live up to what they committed to. So they all hedge their bets. And that's a mistake that people make when they listen only to lawyers because a congressional hearing is not about the law. It's about PR and basic human decency. And they let those two things be ignored. Uh, uh, so that that's one element here. The other element here is her smirking arrogance. Do you understand what it means for somebody who lives in UPenn and Ivy League University in her world, the idea that in a, confrontation between a Republican congresswoman who supports Trump and is an election denier, kind of, where anybody looking at that, anybody she knows looking at that scene, would, of course, sympathize with her. And who is this Republican to think that she even has a right to question me of this elite institution? That arrogance was pulsating through the encounter and the smirk was certainly an indication of that and she just couldn't imagine anyone in the world watching that conversation and not sympathizing with her brilliance rather than the question of a Republican congresswoman so the arrogance killed them and also what the real killer was that when the three of them talked so eloquently about defending freedom of speech and everybody knows they're lying because you know, I, there's multiple examples in each of these institutions of people being deplatformed, banned, fired for veering off the left wing orthodoxy, whether it be on gender issues or affirmative action or whatever, uh, that they know they don't defend free speech. They defend free speech, you know, when it's directed against the unprotected groups like Jews. They will completely ignore free speech if that speech is directed against those those groups that have uh, that enjoy the protection of the left. And, you know, listen, it's very simple. If you misgender a Jew at UPenn, you will get expelled. However, if you threaten to kill him, it's OK. Again, what's interesting, of course, is that um, you know Harvard's board signed first by Penny Pritzker supported uh, Claudine Gay. I don't disagree. I, I think, you know, that uh, McGill from UPenn had to resign. There was just too much there. The Harvard story, and I know not everybody listening will agree with me. 
I, I think there's an argument to be made. It was a wiser decision, you know, not to call for her, her resignation for a few reasons. Number one, we all, we know in life that sometimes winning is losing and we claimed another scalp. What would be the result? All the people who love her will, you know, will certainly feel betrayed and, and harmed by us. It has possible uh, damaging effects with black Jewish relations. And if she stays as she has, it looks like she is, she will show much greater sensitivity to the, uh, uh, to, to, to Jewish concerns going forward. Uh, I'm not sure it's a bad thing her saying, you know, uh, showing a little grace. I, I don't believe everybody has to lose their job over, you know, bad testimony. I'm not saying that's the only thing that was wrong, but the fact is belatedly, but she did write the right things after those 30 Harvard student groups, you know, condemned Israel for being attacked. Uh, she, she, uh, you know, she, she did write some of the, she did write, Good things in the aftermath. So I, I, I don't have a problem with her staying in her job. Do you agree? You agree with uh, uh, Rabbi David Wolpe's resignation from this anti the board that's supposed to investigate anti semitism after her testimony? Yeah. What is victory here? Is victory the resignation? I mean, what what's victory? Well, 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 I, I would say again, the the institution is so uh, smeared, like you said, by so much uh, lack of. Uh, intellectual freedom. It has been a hotbed for years for extreme left-wing ideas, uh, ideologies, almost to the point that you, you, that there needs to be a reconsideration, I believe, by about the purpose of higher education and what people are getting uh, from uh, being able to go to Harvard. I believe in the aftermath of the debacle in those congressional hearings, university administrators will be much more uh, sensitive to Jewish concerns much more likely to crack down. You just saw Rutgers uh, banned uh, SJP, Students for Justice in Palestine, that are at the forefront of many of these demonstrations. You'll see a, a crackdown on, on some of the more extreme expressions of uh, of those who demonstrate against Israel. You, you, you'll see, again, a, an attempt to discipline behavior. However, the core issue of what professors are teaching, of the worldview of the left, where they see the whole world through the prism of the powerless and the powerful and the colonizers and decolonizers. Is that going to change? No, that's not going to change. Let's go from, uh, you know, the, the heights to the mundane, but maybe even the holy. You know, today is the, uh, the sixth day of Hanukkah. Uh, I just returned, uh, and, and you as well from a service that should be Quite expansive Hanukkah and Rosh Chodesh together. And I, before we started recording, I think you told me that that was able to be done in your uh, shul there in Beth Israel, Beth Aaron in 45 minutes, correct? Right. <laughs> in my shul, I think it might have been a little bit over 50. I don't have that uh, train that I must catch. Otherwise, uh, I, I will be stuck for an hour waiting. Um, I don't necessarily have those clients that are waiting for me or uh, the patients that are waiting for me in an operating room somewhere. And so I understand that that people who are gainfully employed and who are contributing to society in, in major ways and, and living in these large cities like New York, like Montreal, have to maximize uh, their time. And let's applaud them for at least showing up and being part of, 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 of a Tvila service. But, but I ask you, really, 
the the speed that is sometimes inserted into these uh, minyanim, and we know that these minyanim, you know, rely on various halachic kulas to start in the middle of the night, how dark it is, uh, and sakim from Chacham Avadi and others that allow, you know, especially during the winter months. But but again, I, I, I as a rabbi who is serving on this, in a way, are you are you sometimes baffled by by how if you if you sneeze and turn around, it's over already. Here's what I would say. I think most of the fast minyan, where do they pick up their speed? I mean, let's be blunt. When, when, where are they fast? They'll do a quick pesukah to zimra. That's really what suffers. Between Baruch Hu and Shemot Esrei, everybody's going slow. Okay? We're really talking pesukah to zimra. I, I believe strongly that anybody who feels that the way the minion is structured doesn't give them enough time for a decent pesukah to zimra, they can come five minutes early and start davening. Okay, everybody's allowed to come early and start davening, and by the time they eat Yishtabach, everyone's on the same page, and from Yishtabach to Shemad Ezrei, people, go, uh, even the fastest minyanim, you know, will we'll go slow. And that's and that's real davening. Let's be blunt. Generally, you're right. There, There's a speed level through Pesukah Zimra, but I think if you know you've got to meet a timetable, uh, I think seven minutes or six minutes is tops from Baruch Hu to get to Shemad Ezrei. And let's talk about Chazar Sashats. And, and, and it's interesting that a, 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 a Kehillah that is, I think, should be rightly extolled for how fervently and slow they daven the Birchas Kriyashma, that is the Chesidisha Kehillah. Uh, like every, every, if you go to a Chesidisha Minion, you can hear the, the excitement and the energy in Kodesh, Kodesh, Kodesh. But their Chazar Sashats, in many, in large part, is, 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 is faster than uh, you can imagine. I, I listen. We can all question the halachic necessity of it when everybody has a sitter knows how to daven today. If your kazorz shots is as quick as the auctioneer who's trying to sell a prize heifer, uh, and there's a number of farmers uh, that are bidding, then then you're right. Maybe as the Rambam wrote so many years ago in Fastat, maybe it makes sense to just do away with it. You know, especially by the way, just let me you know throw this in: if you don't come 10, 15 minutes early, and you are finding yourself woefully behind the Tzibor. We know the great Rav Haigon developed an idea which could have some, you could find it in the Gemara, but it's not Mefurish in the Gemara, is that you daven together with the shots. In other words, if you can't, you're hopelessly beyond catching up right. with them. But then you can wait and you can you can start with the shots together. When you get like your, your, your uh, Baltvila, then it's almost impossible because not only is he dominating, as you're trying to say the words as quickly as possible. You put 30 Jews in a room, but everybody's davening at the same same pace. I think people t- need to take responsibility for their own davening. And if it means coming a little bit earlier for the people who can't swallow Pazuganizimra that quickly. Uh, again, but we also have to know what's really important in davening. What's really important in davening. You know, is of course and and no matter how fast you're going earlier than that, between Yishtabach and Kedusha, people should be moving slowly. You know, the other stuff people can do on their own. I'm not worried. Let me let me ask you something. I know I I sort of know the answer to this, but there are many rabbis. I'm not sure if you're one of them that you can see that in their private supplication and their in their uh, in their silent amida. You can see that there's a lot of, of, of in there. Maybe they're davening for so many chaylim in their community. I'll tell you who I don't like. You and I both studied in a yeshiva, and I won't mention his name. Where, where during in a public minion, the rosh yeshiva would daven 
painfully slow. I mean, you'd have enough time to, to, to learn Masechus Hayrius, uh, waiting to get to Chazar Shashat. He davened crazy long, might I say. But I, I was with him when he davened alone, and he davened faster than anybody you ever met. So, yeah, a lot of these guys are put on a show. The idea of waiting for the Rav, as is explicated by the postkim, is that the Rav is supposed to be a model of normal davening, of davening every, and like ke'ilu moinamos, like you're counting money, right? But if the Rav is off the grid in terms of his kavana, then they shouldn't wait for him. Well, I, I know that they, they say that the great, great tzaddik, Rav Aaron of Bells, was a Holocaust survivor and was a great tzaddik. And people were astounded by the speed of his davening. People were astounded how quick he davened. You know, usually, like you say, uh, the Rebbe's, as you say, they, they, they can sometimes daven hours and hours. And they used to say about him that the Rabbeinu Shalom gave him multiple mouths because he was davening in, in so many ways. His, 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 his mouth and his mind were functioning on, on so many levels. And therefore it came out so quickly. So I, I think that, uh, you know, inspiration is clearly important as, and as the, we learn in Shulchan Aruch, in the very first simon, toiv ma'at bekavona, harbe shaloi bekavona. And, and, and getting ma'at from pupko, uh, bekavona is worth a lot more than others who just blather, uh, aimlessly and never get to the point. We'll catch you hopefully soon next week. Take care, Rabbi. Be well. Bye bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.